It says the record of the genealogy, and again, I read it to you because it's a record, an historical record of the lineage, the historical lineage of Christ. Hello and welcome to the broadcast of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. Weekly, Pastor Chris Reiser, who has been our pastor for approximately 15 years, will be teaching through the study of the book of Matthew. Now, while these messages were first presented starting in 2013, the timeless truths and principles found in God's words are still applicable to today. Throughout this study, you will come to learn that Jesus is the King, the Messiah who is worthy of our praise and worship. So we invite you to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew as Pastor Chris starts by first introducing us to the book of Matthew. Your Bible is to Matthew chapter 1. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. And the reason I continue to read the genealogy is it helps to ground us in the reality, <clears throat> the historical reality of what we are reading, which the world so often denies. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Please be seated. Now, on our vacation over New Year's Eve, we spent some time in a hotel, and one of the things we try to avoid while we were in the hotel is turning on the TV. Well, we managed to get turned on at some point, and we spent about 15 minutes watching the History Channel, or at least what purports to be history on this channel. And during that 15 minutes, only 15 minutes, we, this, this incredible phrase was uttered with an entirely straight face by a man who purported to be an historian, and it was taken seriously by this channel and by the people who heard it. This is what he said, speaking of, of various things that were found in Egypt and in the pyramids and things like that. He says, this means that aliens could have come from outer space and genetically modified whatever creatures were on Earth in order to make man and women in their own image a straight face. He uttered those words. Now, we live in a world where truth is increasingly mixed with fiction and presented as plausible fact, yet somehow it is Christians who hold to the objective truth of Scripture who are touted as weirdos, 
We say that men and women were created in the image of God, and people say, you're a fool. Someone comes on the History Channel and says, men and women were created in the image of aliens, and people go, wow, that might be true. And they believe this. In fact, one of the greatest scientific minds of our entire age purports that, well, we don't really know exactly how the beginnings happened, so it must have been, wait for it, aliens. Nowhere is this confusion and this historical distortion more clear than when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. After 2,000 years, the name of Jesus brings with it, unfortunately, a lot of baggage. Over the years, he's been presented as a moralistic teacher, a liberating hero, a disillusioned deliverer, a long-haired hippie, a countercultural icon, an anti-establishment rebel, and even amazingly enough, a white European oppressor. How is that possible? While the liberals say that we need to pierce through the myths of the Bible to find the real Jesus of history, all we really need to do is pierce through the myths of our culture by studying the Jesus of the Bible, who is one and the same with the true Jesus of history. And we find him laid out for us in beautiful, complete detail, all that we need to know in the Gospels, and beginning with the book of Matthew. So what we'll see this morning and over time and as we, as we study the details of this Gospel is that Jesus is our promised Messiah. He is the risen Savior and coming King who is worthy of all of our praise and before whom we bow in humble worship. Again, Jesus is our promised Messiah, our risen Savior and coming king who is worthy of all of our praise and before whom we bow in humble worship. Now we're continuing this morning with our introduction to the book of Matthew, and I just want to remind you where we've been briefly before we move on to our outline to catch us up to speed, and then we'll just, uh, by the Lord's grace, finish overviewing the book before we enter into a direct discussion of the text in front of us. First, remember that the author is Matthew, the title of the book is The Gospel According to Matthew, and although that is not part, as far as we know, of the inspired manuscript, it was added later, yet we don't have any manuscripts that don't have that title. And so we have no reason to deny the, the, what history has presented from the beginning of, of the time these, these uh, particular uh, documents were, were discovered, is that this gospel is written by Matthew, who was an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, and who was an eyewitness to the things that Jesus said and did, a tax collector, much despised by his own people, and yet radically transformed by the ministry of Christ. These are his credentials. Now, Matthew's sources, we talked about this in really in detail last time, that uh, his sources were an eyewitness account, his own. He was able to see, observe on his own what Jesus did, but also discussion with the other disciples, those who were his friends and who saw some of the things that Matthew did not. Additionally, there was an oral history that was passed down by those who saw the things that Jesus did. Remember what John says. If you were try to try to write all of the things that Jesus said and did, it would fill more books than the earth could contain. There was much there that isn't actually even written in the Gospels and a rich history of oral that was passed down orally or discussed orally. Also remember that we discovered from the book of Luke, as Luke talks about the documents that were out there, those who had tried or had begun writing about the life of Jesus Christ, that Luke had access to those and that he was seeking to then write really the definitive or a definitive declaration of Jesus' life. And so it seems that Matthew has done the same, certainly, that he had those written documents that he could have looked at and that the Spirit of God would have used. All of this was directed by the Spirit in working in and through Matthew to provide for us an inspired, authoritative, and sufficient gospel scripture. 2 Peter 1.20 gives us the means by which this happened. It says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Remember that prophecy is either simply foretelling God's word, that is his character, his principles, his commands, or it is foretelling, that is predicting something in the future. Either one, when it comes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, directly authoritative through him, it is a prophecy. And that's what scripture is. It is prophecy from beginning to end. Right? We, now, there are certain kinds of, of the, or pieces of the Bible that are more directly the foretelling, the telling of what will come. But nonetheless, when Second Peter speaks of prophecy, it speaks of those words that were directly authoritative that the Spirit of God brought through each individual author. It says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's what happened with Matthew. He had the written sources that he had available, his eyewitness accounts, the oral tradition, The Spirit of God brought all of that together through Matthew's individual personality, through his character, through his ability to write, through his language, and placed it down for us as inspired and authoritative scripture. And Matthew's language, remember, the the language that this gospel was written in, the only manuscripts we have are Greek. So it was written in Greek, and we don't have the original manuscripts. We have copies of them, which we discussed briefly last week. There's a whole doctrine of essentially the uh, preservation of Scripture that God has preserved, though, so that what we have is an accurate representation of those original manuscripts which are fully inspired in their originals. Now, just a review before we move on to our outline of the synoptic problem. I mentioned that last time. That is, why is there so much agreement in the Gospels? Were they just copying off each other? A bunch of, you know, one Matthew sat down and just copied from Mark, and any place that he didn't really agree with him or wanted to change something, he just, you know, with, with his own license, he just chose to change it. Why, are there, why is there so much agreement? But also, why are there so many differences? That is, if you look and see the various places that Jesus was, that sometimes there are, whether it's one angel reported or two angels reported, are these discrepancies or are they simply differences of observation and also differences of emphasis And why is this important? And I'm taking this from William Hendrickson. It's really a summary of all that we studied last time. So I'll just briefly read that to you to catch you up to speed. Why why is there so much agreement? Because first and foremost, they had the same primary author, the Spirit of God. Next, so much agreement because they all record the words and deeds of the same Lord Jesus, not different Christ, not they weren't inventing their own Christ on the basis of some kind of historical tradition or what the church needed at that time. It was one Jesus Christ, the real historical character that they were writing about. Therefore, much agreement. Also, all three were based on the observation of many of the same facts. So therefore, again, you have lots of agreement. Additionally, the observed facts were transmitted accurately so that the three Gospels rest on a thoroughly harmonious oral and written tradition. The body of material was already written as a basis then for a unique presentation of the life of Christ as the Holy Spirit moved through the individual author. That's why so much agreement. But why are there differences? Why do we see different events reported? And variations in those events. Well, Jesus himself was an itinerant preacher who proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in different ways at different places and because he performed similar deeds in various places. So you have one event that looks very similar to another, and yet there are differences in it. It doesn't mean it was the same event and one got it wrong and one got it right. right? There were different events that happened at different times and yet very similar because Jesus did a lot of the same things and said a lot of the same things. Additionally, because different witnesses of the works and words of Christ made different observations. When three intelligent and honest men see the same miracle or hear the same sermon, what they see and hear will be presented from three unique, although completely accurate, vantage points. It's one of, one of the reasons for the differences. Again, the oral transmission of the observations through, though completely harmonious, was representative, again, of a variety of differing vantage points from all of those who saw the ministry of Christ. And then, because in the use of sources, why there are differences, 
because in the use of sources, whether oral or written, or even eyewitness, each evangelist exercised his spirit-guided judgment in accordance with his own character, education, and general background, and with a view to the realization of his own distinct plan and purpose in writing his particular gospel. That's the so-called synoptic problem. It's not a problem at all. It's a beautiful reflection of how God has revealed to us the nature and person and work of Jesus Christ from three, and that's with the, the three synoptic gospels, from three differing perspectives, yet entirely true. And just again, why does it matter that I would even mention this or we would even talk about it before diving into the text? Because the gospels are historical documents with a document history that is open for all to interpret. We don't deny that. As Christians, we don't say, well, this is a magical document that appeared from an angel who gave it to someone on a mountain. No, these are real historical documents. We can see them. They're open to study. That's a wonderful thing. And the amazing things after all that study and all that work and all the attempts to rip apart the Gospels, they still stand. You need to know that. And you need to also understand how you work through the differences that are presented. Additionally, the Gospels have significant similarities and differences which need to be explained in light of an absolute commitment to biblical inerrancy. See, so much of what's going on in our schools today, even our conservative evangelical schools, is that they're essentially approaching the Bible from a human reason standpoint. All the other kinds of truth come first, and we'll see if the Bible matches up. Rather than understanding the Bible as an errant truth and then viewing the events through the reality of biblical authority. It doesn't change the nature of history. It changes our understanding of the, how the Bible comes to bear on the realities of what we see in historical events. Really, it's the Bible that determines it ultimately and directs us in those things. Also, believers are not afraid to deal with real issues raised by the historical basis of Christianity. You believe in an historical Jesus. He really lived. He really walked on this earth. He's not mythical. We didn't make him up, and so therefore he is open to discussion, and that's right and good as long as it's based properly upon an understanding of the Word of God. We do not run from those things. We properly explain them, and I pray that you as believers will learn to do this. And finally, the historical Jesus as fully presented in the Gospels is the most important person in all of history. It is the task of the church to defend the accuracy of his life and ministry against all opponents, and we will do so. We're not going to do so any less because we are a church who is stepping through these Gospels verse by verse. We're going to continue to defend who the nature of who Christ is. Now, further review, remember the date of the writing of Matthew, probably somewhere between 58 and 69 AD, enough time for oral tradition to have developed, but also before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And the audience, Christian Jews, those who believed in Christ as the Messiah to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith, and unbelieving Jews, those who rejected Jesus as Messiah, to demonstrate to them that he was indeed the predicted Messiah of the Old Testament. Now, on to your outline. I began, or I just said, we touched on this several weeks ago when we discussed what kind of literature is this. And even when I say that, some of you go, what do you mean, what kind of literature? I just mean that which you can read. It's on the page. It's, it's literature to read. Well, it's inspired literature, but what kind? It's, we said it was ancient historical biography. And remember that in the Bible, we have historical narrative, the direct presentation of historic events. We have wisdom literature, which speak of general principles that are, that are again, generally true, like in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We have prophecy, which foretells events, speaking of the things that will happen, as well as simply foretelling God's principles. We have epistle, those things that the apostles wrote in explanation of Jesus's person in life. And then we have the gospels. 
they are unique and that they represent historical narrative, or they, they are historical narrative, but they have distinguishing characteristics which give them a unique place in the canon of Scripture. Not exactly the same as even every other kind of historical narrative. So what are those characteristics? First, the Gospels are fully historically reliable. Simply because they were written in a different fashion, right, this what we call ancient historical biography, does not mean that they are any less than truthful. See, the Gospels were not written according to our modern expectations for historical biography. That is, in the kinds of information they might include. I mean, very little included about Jesus' personal life, his appearance, as in personal life as in early on as, as a youngster, the, you know, where he grew up, very few things that even mentioned about that, where in a modern biography, you'd expect that. All of that would be laid out for you, right? But we don't have that in this, in what we have in the Gospels. Additionally, the literary conventions of the first century were different, and even the way the information was put together. It is not always chronological, as we will see. So it is fully historical, well, historically reliable. But secondly, another aspect of the Gospels is that they are not fully chronological. That doesn't mean uh, events are invented. It doesn't mean that one event is said to come after another when it didn't really. It simply means that you can place events without stating exactly when and where they happened, right? And you can put them in various forms Right? that don't have to be chronological in order for it to still be true. Right? It's universally acknowledged by conservative students of Scripture, that is, those who really believe this is the inspired, authoritative Word of God, that the Gospel accounts do not move in strictly historical sequence. In some places, there is a strict historical progression, and in some places, the events are chosen to fit a particular theme. It's simply, they all happened. Matthew picks certain ones that he wants to portray. Luke picks certain ones as well. Probably Again, this is probably most clearly seen even in the presentation of the temptation of Jesus. There were three temptations, right? Satan tempted Jesus in three different ways, but they're given in two different orders, one in Matthew and one in Luke, right? That doesn't mean they're incorrect, right? Or that they didn't happen or that one was invented, simply that the order is not chronological, nor is it claimed that it is. So they're not fully chronological. Don Carson says it this way. I think it's a good way to view this. He says, in view of the historical and biographical styles of Matthew's day, it is not wise, or excuse me, it is wise not to assume that two consecutive stories occurred one after the other unless one of the passages specifically declares that they did, or unless the second passage refers to the first in a way that logically requires the stories to have occurred in that order. Again, it's not that there is no chronological flow, it's simply that it is not claimed that there is always chronological flow. So this should not be of concern to us. Now, also a third aspect of ancient historical biography is that it is theme-driven. When Matthew deviates from a strict chronology, it is usually apparent that he's presenting a particular theme in the life and ministry of Christ that the Holy Spirit has directed him to emphasize. So he might skip over some intervening events because there's a theme that he wants to portray from, from either the teaching of Christ or, or the things that he was doing in his life. Therefore, what we have is truly gospel, ancient, historical narrative, fully, number four, scripture. Regardless of the exact way in which Matthew went about writing his gospel, it is nothing less than the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and all-sufficient word of God. Now, granted, some of this, or, or our understanding of scripture as authoritative and inspired and sufficient, is taken by faith. There's no doubt about that. I'm not trying to reason you into it in one sense. I'm only saying that your faith is based on true documents that we can actually read and discover in an historical setting that was real and true, and which we can even find out things about as we look back in history. But this nonetheless remains God's word, and we take that by faith. Never forget that. Faith based on truth and reality, faith based on what God has told us in his word. And this faith 
breeds joy and optimism in the Scripture. See, when you approach it with unbelief, then you begin to deconstruct the Scriptures. When you approach it with faith, what you find is that the Scriptures are true in all aspects and reflect the things that actually happened. You don't have to deconstruct them. See, the Gospels proclaim a Christ who arose from the dead and lives forevermore as the believer, Savior, and friend. Faith is indeed the victory that overcomes the world. And again, what I mean by that is simply that an unbeliever coming to these texts will not agree with you. Say, well, no, there are contradictions, there are problems. And you say, no, look, understanding what God has said about His Word, let me show you how that's not a contradiction. Let me show you how that does actually work itself out in history and other places. But don't expect that you'll be able to reason them into this, that they will then go, ah, because I see that, I will therefore come to Christ. There's faith that is necessary to understand this as a supernatural document. It is that, although it is reasonable, it is historical, it is truthful. Now, one of my favorite quotes from William Henderson to kind of sum all of this up, the attacks upon the Bible by unbelievers who refuse to see it as the inspired word of God, says this, I believe he's quoting someone else actually. He says, hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers break, God's anvil stands. You see, it is scripture that ultimately determines reality. The scripture through which we view all of reality. And it is the big T truth that dictates essentially everything about our world. It, it frames our every conversation about what is actually true. Now, the structure of Matthew. Again, these are important things to help you as, as you study through the book, ways to kind of, kind of link things together in the book of Matthew. And let me offer you a suggestion for this coming year. In case you were wondering, what should I read this year? What should I do for my Bible study? Well, I'd like to give you a suggestion. How about reading through the book of Matthew either every week, breaking it up into seven different sections and reading through it every week, or, or possibly just every month, breaking it into different sections per week over and over for this entire year. Now, if you do that, I'm not going to be done with Matthew by the time the year is done, but you're going to know a lot more about Matthew. And when I present something, well, this theme is here and Jesus will do this later, you're like, ah, I know that already. I've already read that. You will be steeped in the book of Matthew, and that way I'm not going to slip anything over on you either. I mean, wait a minute, that's not in there. I read the book. It's not that I would seek to do that. But you're like, whoa, we better be checking. You ought to be checking, though. You ought to know. You ought, I'd, like you to, I'd like you to bleed Mathleen, if you will, that you would know and understand this. And really, I want you to do that for the Bible. Add to that your one-year Bible that you're reading as you're working through. And then add to that your studies of Scripture that you're doing on Wednesday and Sunday. And don't add any more than that. Some of you guys have got 15 different Bible studies and your personal study and I mean, use what you, the church is doing to help direct you in your study and don't invent what's got to be my, my thing. I had to make that up. Why don't you take my advice or, or take the study you're doing on Wednesday night and use that as your personal Bible study. Don't keep multiplying this. You get buried in Bible study and then you just bleed confusion, not bleeding. All right, so anyway, all that to say, there's three major sections that maybe you could kind of you know, consider as you look at the book of Matthew, three movements as it will. And each of them are really uh, introduced by the phrase, from that time on, Jesus began to. You will notice that key phrase in the scripture. So the first section is from 1.1, Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 4.16. Go ahead and just turn to Matthew 4.17 and you'll see what I mean. And so just in Matthew 4.16, it finishes up a discussion of what Jesus was doing. Really, it finishes up the overview uh, of Jesus from his birth, right, all the way up to the beginning of his ministry. And then in verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to. And so now it makes a transition into the next portion that Matthew's going to discuss for us.
Thank you for joining us today, and we pray that you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word. Please join us again at the same time, at the same place, to continue our study in the book of Matthew. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church and many of the ministries that we offer, please visit us online at gracemerrillville.org. That is gracemerrillville.org. Online, you will be able to not only learn more about Grace Community Church, but you will also be able to access our full audio archives with complete messages by Pastor Chris Brazer. Until next time, we pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling.